This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thank you all for having me here. I'm really very appreciative that we do not have another snowstorm. Um, I'm sick of snow. I don't know about the rest of you. Um, it's really getting a little tiring. But I want to thank the Center for Peace and Justice Education for this gracious invitation. Everybody who participated, that long list of people that you read out, thank you all. I don't know who you all are. I can't remember that much because I got Pope Francis in the front of my brain right now. Um, but thank you for having me here to be the MLK speaker. I should probably say as a disclaimer, even though um, that was a gracious introduction to my book, I should probably say why I'm always interested in Martin Luther King, and that is in part because my dissertation advisor many years ago is a King scholar, Lewis Baldwin of Vanderbilt, who just recently retired. And so I'm always interested in Martin Luther King and his impact on what is going on in today's world. And especially for this talk, because for me, this is something that puts together my two selves very well. One self is a African-American self who has a center in civil rights, and the other self is a black Catholic. I come from five generations back of Catholicism. And most of us don't talk about black Catholics in this country very much, but we have a very rich history. And so for me to be able to get up and talk about Pope Francis today and that effect of what is going on right now in the church and throughout the world with this conversation about poverty is a real honor for me. And I'm kind of like a Catholic history geek, so this is gonna be really nice for me, okay? So I wanna thank you all for having me because this is something that I don't get to do very often, but it hits the core of who I am. It's my connection to my faith, poverty and equity, and issues of social justice. And in light of that, I want to start my talk off today with this quote that's up here on, the, on both sides of me. And I'm going to read it out loud for you in case you can't see it. And then I've got a question for all of you here. Where the undeveloped countries are concerned, the church presents herself as she is. She wishes to be the church of all, and especially the church of the poor. Every offense against and violation of the fifth and sixth commandments of the Holy Decalogue, the neglect of tasks which flow from the seventh commandment, the miseries of social life which cry for vengeance in the sight of God, all this must be recalled and deplored. The duty of every man, the impelling duty of the Christian, is to look upon what is superfluous in the light of the needs of others and to see that to it that the administration and distribution of created goods are placed at the advantage of all. This is called the spread of the social and community sense, which is innate in the true Christianity. And now here's the question. Which one of these men said this? Pope John XXIII or Pope Francis? So I want to ask a show of hands. How many of you think it's Pope Francis? Raise your hand. Got any takers? I got a few. Okay. How many of you think it's John XXIII? I knew I had a good Catholic school here. It's John XXIII. Now, do you know when John XXIII said this? It is a month before the opening of the Vatican II Council. And not only is it a month before the opening, it's to a radio address. And the address was made on September 11th, 1962, in anticipation of the opening of the Council. In that address, John XXIII would echo some of the major themes of the Council, especially that of the promotion of justice in the political and social state of the world in which the Vatican II Council would be held. At the time of his speech, a young priest, Dorje Bergoglio, was entering into his second year of the priesthood and would have no idea that 51 years later, as Pope, his words would echo those of Pope John XXIII in his apostolic exhortation 
And all of you who know the Latin out here, just forgive me, I'm from Texas, okay? We don't know how to do Latin very well. Um, Evangelii Gaudium, or the joy of the gospel. And here we go. The church, guided by the gospel of mercy and by love for mankind, hears the cry of justice and intends to respond to it with all of her might. In this context, we understand Jesus' command to the disciples, you yourselves give them something to eat. It means working to eliminate the structural causes of poverty and to promote the integral development of the poor, as well as the daily small acts of solidarity in meeting the real needs we encounter. It presumes the creation of a new mindset, which thinks in terms of community and the priority of life, overall, the appropriation of goods by a few. These two statements made by popes 51 years apart speak to the core belief of the Catholic Church, the care of the poor and the promotion of justice. They represent a continuity that many, both inside and outside of the Catholic Church, have forgotten, care of the poor. And if you've seen any clips I've done recently on MSNBC, I've had one big statement to make, is that everybody is freaked out about what Pope Francis is saying because they forgot what a real Catholic sounds like. And one of my, uh, my priest friend's mother asked, well, what does a real Catholic sound like? And I said, a real Catholic cares about the poor. A real Catholic cares about what justice is going on in the world. And we might argue about what the theological things are. We might argue about all different kinds of things. But at the end of the day, the care for the poor has been something that is in inherent in all the most all the documents of the church and the way the church has conducted herself since day one. And so all of this critique, all of the things that are happening right now about Pope Francis's critique about capitalism and poverty are not surprising. And let me just share a couple of them with you. First is Rush Limbaugh, that great Catholic theologian. <laughs> Here's what he had to say. But the Pope here has gone beyond Catholicism, and this is purely political. I want to share with you some of this stuff. In a document on Tuesday, he means the joy of the gospel, setting out a platform for his papacy and calling for a renewal of the Catholic Church. In it, Francis went further than previous comments criticizing the global economic system, attacking the idolatry of money. I've got to be careful. I've been here numerous times to the Vatican. It wouldn't exist without tons of money. But regardless what this is, somebody has either written this for him or gotten to him. I guess it's that guy named Jesus, right? So it's like somebody saying, you know, you really need to say this, right? This is pure Marxism coming out of the mouth of the Pope. Unfettered capitalism, that doesn't exist anywhere. Unfettered capitalism is a liberal socialist phrase to describe the United States. Unfettered, unregulated. But the best was in, in another broadcast, Rush claimed that someone had gotten to him and that someone was Jesus, right? And then Ross Dufat, who's in the New York Times, said the Pope Francis's language tilted left in ways that no serious reader can deny. Or we might take a critique from Representative Paul Ryan, who said this. This guy is from Argentina. They haven't had real capitalism in Argentina, Ryan said, referring to Pope as that guy is a nice folksy touch, right? I mean, who knows? Would any of us here call him that guy? Well, I don't know. They have crony capitalism in Argentina. They don't have a true free enterprise system. Now, the Pope, of course, always has a pithy rejoinder to his critics, and in La Stampa, he said a few days later, the Marxist ideology is wrong. But I've met many Marxists in my life who are good people, so I don't feel offended. <laughs> now, Pope Francis is a better person than I am, because I would probably want to take them on, but that's not the person he is. But these same criticisms would play another religious leader, 
back in the 60s. And that leader is the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, who was always considered to be a communist by his detractors, who was concerned with issues of poverty. Martin Luther King, a progressive Baptist who started off being a National Baptist, but the denomination broke up because they couldn't agree about civil rights, was also concerned with issues of justice and poverty, but in a very intense way five months before his assassination. He was called a communist and a socialist, all because of his concern for the poor. When King inaugurated his Poor People's Campaign in December of 1967, King faced criticism from some of his Southern Christian Leadership Council members and even from Jesse Jackson. Today, the Pope Francis and his hopes for promoting the faith that does justice is being criticized and also winning hearts and minds, mine included. My talk today will be to draw in this time that we have a 50-year arc between John Paul XXIII, the War on Poverty, MLK's Poor People's Campaign, and the focus on the first Jesuit popes, re-emphasis on poverty in his messages to both the church and the world. My hope is by the time we get done today and you ask me some questions, that we all come away with a better understanding about this issue and care for the impoverished in our world today, and that this is one of the biggest issues we face in the 21st century as the issues of wealth and um, the accumulation of wealth and the greater divide between the poor, the rich, and those crunched in the middle, and what are we gonna do about it, and what does our faith say for us to do about it? But in order to do that, I wanna take us back to the 1960s first. Um, at the end of the day, I'm a historian, and I think what a lot of people are forgetting in this conversation is that part of what is happening is not a new thing that Pope Francis is talking about, but something that is old and timeless, and something that is embedded not just in his Jesuit identity, but the church's identity. And it has broad connections to other religious um, communities. And so I wanna first talk about John Paul, um, Pope John Paul XXIII and what happened before the Va opening of Vatican II Council. No one could predict what the council's documents would say about poverty or how Catholics and others would receive that message. While poverty, along with civil rights in America, became a major topic of concern, the church was just beginning to start to think about the state of the world and how the church should be represented in it. The issue of poverty would be a small but important part of the Vatican II documents, but not to the extent that it would be focused on after the council and after the documents were completed. Part of this change in focus would result in many more priests, nuns, and lay people who went to work expressly with the poor as part of their vocations. And I, I wanna bring out here that part of what has happened for a lot of people, people look at this history two ways. One, it was a history that opened up the church and it was another that crippled the church because a lot of those same priests and nuns and other kinds of lay persons, went, people went away from the church because they found something out in the world that they weren't finding in the church. But I don't wanna argue that tonight. I wanna kinda of think about what happened as a result of all of those documents. Part of that change in focus, some scholars would say, was from part of Vatican II document called Gaudium et Spes, the church in the modern world. That document, which covered the role of the church in the world in economics, points out how economic inequalities should be brought to end and how the production of profits are um, not a good thing. And so I wanna read a little quote from the document for you. This is all the more pressing since the greater part of the world is still suffering for so much poverty that it is as if Christ himself were crying out in, these, in the poor to beg the charity of the disciples. Do not let men then be scandalized because some countries with a majority of citizens 
poor counted as Christians have an abundance of wealth, whereas others are deprived of the necessities of life and are tormented with hunger, disease, and every kind of misery. The spirit of poverty and charity are the glory and the witness of the Church of Christ. These Christians are to be praised and supported, therefore, who volunteer their services to help other men and nations. And that is section 88 of Gaudium et Spes. Then religious orders, as a result of reading this document, begin to consider their roles in help of the poor. And I'm going to talk a little bit later about how this really affected the Jesuit order in a lot of different ways and how I think this probably also impacted um, then Jorge Bergoglio in, in sort of ways as well that sort of really influences his way of thinking today. Even before Gaudium et Spes, those in religious orders in America found themselves partnering with the US government, an unlikely source and President LBJ's war on poverty. So if you think about this, I, I took Gaudium et Spes, which is 65, but now I'm going to move us back to 64 because that's sort of a little bit of a foreshadowing. In his inaugural address from 1964, 50 years ago, and if you've been paying attention to the news, this has been a lot in the news a lot the last couple of weeks, LBJ has made, made some comments in his speech about poverty, and I want to quote from his State of the Union. Unfortunately, many li Americans live on the outskirts of hope some because of their poverty, and some because of their color, and all too many because of both. Our task is to help replace their despair with opportunity. This administration today, here and now, declares unconditional war on poverty in America. I urge this Congress and all Americans to join with me in that effort. It will not be a short or easy struggle. No single weapon or strategy will suffice, but we shall not rest until that war is won. The richest nation in the earth can, on the earth can afford to win it. We cannot afford to lose it. And if you look up here next, this is a little bit after that speech. Uh, President Johnson and Lady Bird Johnson uh, visit in April of 64, Inez, Kentucky, right in the uh, Appalachian region, and visit a, a home that you obviously can see is not you know, the best of places. There's a lot of poverty there. But LBJ was serious about this war on poverty and he had Catholics to help him in that war of poverty, specifically one devout Catholic, Sergeant Shriver, who was tapped to head this war on poverty in the Office of Economic Opportunity. Now, this Office of Economic Opportunity does some things that we would probably be surprised about today. They started these different programs in 1964. Um, a couple of names you might recognize, Service to America Project, Head Start, Upward Bound, Job Corps, and one called Vista Volunteers. These programs were designed to um, both train people to help um, stop poverty and to put in um, different communities anti-poverty programs, okay? But they were not enough. Um, and for some of Catholics, what they would do, and some of the nuns did at least, in different places, decided how could we partner in with what's on the ground through our different apostolates and some of the lay apostolates. What happened was a big tension. Part of the tension came when um, organizations like Vista said, if you are a nun and you want to be involved in this, you can't wear your habit, you can't wear your clerical outfit. Okay? And that was a real push against that. So the people had to make a choice about how are we going to be involved with the government. And you know, that causes all sorts of issues and kind of, kind of problems. But at the same time, it called Catholics in America to start to think about how are we going to you know, get some of these funds. And some of these federal funds flowed into Catholic church programs to help in these programs, okay? So even before 65 and Gaudium et Spes, you had a sense in the, in the Catholic Church in America that this was gonna happen. So that's prong one. 
all right? And so you had nuns going out into poor communities, you had priests going out into poor communities. A lot of times what happens is you had, especially in African American communities, you already had um, parishes that had um, schools connected to them. Some of that money flowed into those schools to help shore them up, and it changed a lot of people's lives in, in that sense. But at the same time, you had another tension. And that other tension was with the civil rights movement. And if we're thinking about 65 forward, you have the assassination of Malcolm X, you have um, the Vietnam War escalating, and you have a sense of which Martin Luther King, because of the Civil Rights Act being signed in 1964, wanting to change his direction, wanting to change his focus. And there were two things that he wanted to think about. One was the war in Vietnam that he begins to speak out about very heavily, and the other is poverty. Okay? And since he had been working back and forth with LBJ, on the one hand, he was very happy about this war on poverty, but that war on poverty began to have issues with it. And so King began to push in the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, the LCLC, and in other places that they needed to do more about poverty. And there needed to be something else happen. So let me just show you a little picture here from the LCLC campaign. I'll talk about this in a minute. In 1967, King made an SCLC address, which was a, a new movement was, was born. He said that he wanted to question the effects of capitalism on the broader society. He always had a kind of a critique about these market forces and what we would call sort of, you know, the structural issues involved and what was causing poverty. But for King, pushing away the vestiges of Jim Crow is not, was not enough to bring equality for African Americans in American life. He knew confronting the inequalities of the economy would be a lasting way to ensure that the gains of the civil rights movement would remain. So one of the things that King asked about, which is a conversation we're having right now, is a higher minimum wage. And so this minimum wage conversation that you think is a new conversation is an old conversation, okay? And King would probably be very surprised if he were here right now that we're still having a conversation about it instead of moving it. So I just want to put that out to say that these issues of the past are very much issues of the present, okay? Now, King was about sort of thinking about how do we take on the restructuring of the whole of American society. It's not enough to talk about civil rights. We also have to talk about um, what capitalism is doing. And King's words in this particular speech that he gave to the SCLC were a stinging indictment of American society. And let me just read a little bit here. These are King's words. There are 40 million people here, and one day we must ask the question, why are there 40 million poor people in America? And when you begin to ask that question, you're raising a question about the economic system, about a broader distribution of wealth. When you ask that question, you begin to question the capitalistic economy. And I'm simply saying that more and more, we've got to begin to ask questions about the whole society. We are called upon to help the discouraged beggars in life marketplace. But one day we must come to see that an edifice that produces beggars needs restructuring. It means that questions must be raised. And you see, my friends, when you begin to deal with this, you begin to ask the question, who owns the oil? You begin to ask the question, who owns the iron ore? You begin to ask the question, why is it that people have to pay water bills in a world that's two-thirds water? These are words that must be said. Asking these questions in King's position was dangerous. Now, if you don't know a lot about Martin Luther King, one of the things that we talk about now is the government spying on us. Trust me, they've been doing it for a long time. Okay, so nobody should be surprised about Glenn Greenwald. Um, one of the ways that a lot of us learned about um, what King was doing was through the FBI redacted records, all the things that they did of the phone calls and everything else. So this move for King was a very dangerous move. Once you start talking about money, people get mad. 
okay? And they get mad because they think you either want to take their money away or that you want to redistribute their money in a way that they don't like, okay? Um, much of the criticism that was leveled at King was couched in the terms of King's community thinking and talking about the redistribution of wealth and advocating for the poor, okay? And you might imagine what word they probably called him, either communist or socialist because you want to redistribute something, okay? Now, this focus on economics didn't come out of a vacuum, though. If you have to think about kinds of people who were involved in the civil rights movement during this time, you have people like Fannie Lou Hamer who was sharecropping, you have other people in the vast amount of poverty that you see, not just in the American South, but in the inner cities of the North, okay? So this is, this is something that for him is not just about regionality, it's about changing everything. So when this Poor People's Campaign starts in December of 1967, when he announced it, what MLK wants to do is to travel around the country and put up different kinds of activities to go against what he believes are you know, not enough wages and things like that. So you have people like Cesar Chavez and others who come alongside of this. And um, the reason why Martin Luther King is even in Memphis when he is killed is that he is going there for the Memphis sanitation worker strike. If you don't know what happened there, um, just briefly, a sanitation worker was crushed in a trash truck. They were marching for um, better working conditions and better wages. And King was there to, to march with them. And so when he's there, he's there because he's there fighting against poverty. It's not just simply because he shows up to give a speech in Mason Temple that he preaches, and the next day he's shot on, on the porch of the Lorraine Motel. It is because he is fighting against poverty and injustice. And poverty and injustice in Memphis at that time was going on with the um, sanitation workers. So he's assassinated. And what happens to this poor people's campaign? Well, what happens to it is, is that people who are alongside of him, like Jesse Jackson, who didn't want to do this at first, and then Ralph Abernathy say, we have to continue to do this. And as a result, they meet, starting on May 14th in 1968, more than 3,000 activists and poor Americans come from all parts of the country to um, camp out in Washington, and they built a shantytown on the mall and named it Resurrection City. And I don't know if you can see in this picture, but I, I, I use this picture for a reason. There's signs here, Newark, New Jersey, Council of Churches, the Episcopal Diocese. These are a whole group of religious people who are out here camping alongside. You had nuns, you had priests, you had all these people, religious, com religious people coming together to say, we want to do this, we want to have this poor people's campaign. And they basically built uh, Resurrection City, which was this sort of shantytown camp. They lived there for about a month. It reminds me a lot of Occupy, if you wanted to sort of make a comparison to that. And it didn't, it didn't work. They had really muddy rains for the last month. It got, it got really bad, and it turned into a mess. But I want to put a pin there because at the same time all of this is happening, there's something else happening in the Catholic Church, and a specific part of the Catholic Church. And that's the part that concerns us now. So this is the first half of this is to sort of say, here's the context of the 1960s, okay? So now we're going to make the shift and start to talk about what's going on in Pope Francis's world during this time, or better yet, the world of the Jesuits, okay? And um, I decided to use this Time Magazine cover of um, Superior General of the Jesuits, Pedro Rupe, in part because, A, I liked it, and I also wanted to show that, you know, there have been priests on front of the cover of Time Magazine before even Pope Francis, so there you go. And this is from a little bit later, actually, I think 1973, and I can't tell from the print. But let me start to talk about why Pope Francis is the way that he is. And um, I want to go back to when the um, announcement was made 
of the Pope back in Feb uh, last February. And I need to tell you that it was not surprising to me about who it was, it was surprising to me about what order he was. Because for many of us, you thought you would never see a Jesuit Pope in like a million lifetimes, okay? So that's first of all. So I'm still today, as we go into, you know, two, uh, maybe a month and a half away, maybe from, from the announcement, that I'm still surprised, all right? And I'm surprised in part because of this man, Pedro Rupe. And I'm surprised because when you think about the history of Pedro Rupe and the Society of Jesus, he really changed the focus, first of all. And second, he took very seriously what the church in the modern world said. And in 1965, when he was elected Superior General of the Jesuits, one of the things that he said was, I want the Jesuits to begin to think about being people in the world. What do we do in the world? Instead of thinking about where we are and, you know, and our nice cushy places and doing educational activities and all the things that we do that are very good, I want to start thinking about what does it mean to be in the world. And so that put sort of a, I would say, a big ripple through the order. And you have to think about Pope Francis is in what is maybe fourth year when this first statement arises. And about three years later, there's a very big thing that Pedro Rupe writes to the Jesuits in Latin America. And there's a phrase that all of you will probably know if you've had a little bit of um, contemporary Catholic um, history. When he wrote a letter to um, the, Latin, the Jesuits of Latin America in 68, he used a phrase called, we need to have the preferential option for the poor. Now, what does that mean? It says that we're not gonna just think about, you know, the poor, you know, they're there, we gotta do something with them. We need to prefer them over some other things that we are doing. We need to really think about what it means to have a preferential option for the poor. You know, all of this made, you know, if you put this together, this statement with the church in the modern world, what you begin to have is sort of like a rumbling in the church, and especially in this order. Because what you have in Latin America is bone-crushing poverty, okay? And this bone-crushing poverty is, is seen by all of these Jesuits who are working in Latin America. And what begins to happen is a sense in which people start to sort of theologize around this. And so this statement was taken by Gustavo Gutierrez, who we think of as the modern father of liberation theology. And he took that and sort of ran with it and said, we need to think about a theology of liberation. And that is going to be intrinsically about the poor. And I want to state three statements here that sort of are like your core nuggets about liberation theology. First, material poverty is never good, but an evil to be opposed. And to put it in the words of Gutierrez, it's not simply an occasion for charity, but a degrading force that denigrates human dignity and ought to be opposed and rejected. Second, poverty is not a result of fate or laziness. And, and can I just pause here and just say, this is one of the things that's killing me about the discourse in this nation right now, is that everybody talks about poverty as though it is your fault, and that is because you, you must have done something wrong or you're not working hard enough. That's just crap, okay? I need you to say that up front, and you can call me all kind of liberal Catholic I want you want to, but it really burns me up, and it is just antithetical to anything that is Christian, whether you consider yourself Christian, Catholic, otherwise, it just is wrong. It's due to structural injustices that privilege, privilege some while marginalizing others. Poverty is not inevitable. Collectively, the poor can organize and facilitate social change. Third, poverty is a complex reality and is not limited to its economic dimension. To be poor is to be insignificant. Poverty means an early and unjust death. Now, lots of things happen with this, with Gustavo Gutierrez's theology of liberation. 
One is you had some Marxism on the ground already in Latin America, and these things got folded into Marxist ideas, and for not just the Jesuits, but lots of priests and others in Latin America, this became a launching pad to start to think about how we're gonna fight against poverty, okay? Some of that was in good ways, some of that was in bad ways, some of that we can debate about, okay? But this whole thing became part and parcel of what happened in the 1970s. It gave um, rise to base communities and other things in Latin America. It was thriving, it was amazing. The kinds of things and the kind of growth that happened in the Catholic Church were exponential. At the same time, however, there's, there was an issue. And the issue was, is do we continue to do this? And, and amongst the Jesuits, this was a big fight. So in this 32nd General Council, one of the things that happened was a very big argument when Pedro Arupe brought everybody together to talk about you know, the future of the Jesuits and what should we be thinking about in the midst of this liberation theology. What are we going to do? And a phrase came out of that, the service of faith and the promotion of justice. Now, my first job was at a, a Jesuit institution. I always value that because that is one of the core things that I think about is how do we serve the faith and how do we promote justice. But that was a radical idea in the early 1970s because you still have a church that is wrestling with this entire huge big document of Vatican II. This is the world that Jorge Bergoglio becomes a provincial in. And that provincial thing that happens with him is, you know, he's over a group of Jesuits in Argentina, doesn't turn out so well. Because he's kind of, on the one hand, a disciplinarian. He wants to accept some of the things about liberation theology, but he doesn't like the Marxist piece, okay? And this ends up rather poorly for him, and it doesn't turn out well. However, let me say this. Where you hear Pope Francis talking about poverty, talking about these issues, this all comes out of this generation from 1965 forward. What is happening right now is that you are not, people are putting this pope as though he just rose sui generis right now after the, after the election. This is somebody who lived through this whole thing, who understands what it is like to look for poverty in the midst of the church. So the kinds of things that you hear about what he was doing in Argentina where he took the bus and he, you know, he walked back and forth to work every day and all these stories, this is him living this out. He's living out what was going on in the 70s and early 80s. Now, for the Jesuits, this would become an interesting problem because some of them decided that they wanted to do this more than other things. When um, Pope John I died and then we had Pope John Paul II, this became a real tension within the order. And this became a, a, a very big thing. Um, there were problems between General Rupe and the Pope. Those got ironed out, but part of that got ironed out because he ended up having a stroke. And so for 11 years from the early 80s until the early 90s when Pedro Rupe passed away, he was unable to speak. But this idea about justice, this um, preferential option for the poor, was really locked into the church. So we cannot look at what is going on with Pope Francis in this bridge between where we are in 2014 and where the church was in 1964-65 without paying attention to this history. And this history is a really important thing when we understand when Pope Francis is about to be enthroned, what he has to say. And hopefully this is going to play as loud as it can. And I want to let you listen to this and I want to start talking about the third piece. And I'll tell you what this is. Hopefully you'll be able to hear what he says in a minute. You know what that audio. Is there any more we can bring up audio on this? Hang on a second, I'll pause it. I don't want you to miss what he's going to say. I need to be louder. Anyway, this, this event is him in front of um, 
of the whole group of journalists who are meeting him before the installment and after he's been elected. And I want to just use this as a frame to talk about why he's saying what he's saying. I'll stop that right there. Now, this is, this is like straight up, like a couple days afterwards. Poverty, the poor, the poor, okay? I've made a statement that I think that this is something that we're going to hear about until this pope goes on to, be, to, to go into the next phase of his existence, okay? This is not a different message for him. This is the message that I believe he intends to carry throughout. And the reason why I say that is this. Here we go. This is a Pope Francis word cloud. <laughs> Uh, now, this particular word cloud is the difference between the things that he emphasizes and the difference that Pope Benedict um, XVI emphasized. And you can see that poverty is like a pretty dang big word, right? So poverty, cross, flesh, woman, saint, you know, these are, big, these are big, bold words here. But poverty is a huge word. And I wanted to use that as a template to sort of talk about a little bit of an arc here. And the arc is, um, how has the Pope been speaking about poverty since he started? And one of the big places where he started to talk about poverty, and I think that a lot of the American press missed, because he wasn't talking to anybody American, was in May 2013. To, and there were comments that he made to new non-resident ambassadors to the Vatican from Kyrgyzstan, Antigua and Barbados, the Grand Luchy of Duc um, Luxembourg, and Botswana. And let me just read this for a second so you get a kind of a sense of what he's, what he's talking about. In circumstances like these, solidarity, which is the treasure of the poor, is often considered counterproductive, opposed to the logic of finance in the economy. While the income of a minority is increasing exponentially, that of the majority is crumbling. This imbalance results from ideologies which uphold the absolute autonomy of the markets and financial speculation, and thus deny the right of control to states, which are themselves charged with providing for the common good. A new, invisible, and at times virtual tyranny is established, one which unilaterally and irremediably poses its own laws and rules. Moreover, indebtedness and credit distance countries from their real economy and citizens from their real buying power. Added to this, as if it were needed, is widespread corruption and selfish fiscal evasion, which have taken on worldwide dimensions. The will to power and of possession have become limitless. Concealed behind this is a rejection of ethics, a rejection of God. That's a pretty powerful statement. And he's making this to these leaders, but every day, you know this if you pay attention to the Vatican, these statements are promulgated. And so there wasn't a lot of press about this. The European press talked about it a lot, but in America, nobody talked about it. But what I want to say is this. 
This is a pope who is about structural sin. This is not a pope who is about uh, moral sin in the same way you have heard him, people talk about moral sin before. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is this. What Pope Francis is doing is restructuring the conversation, reordering the conversation. That is not to say that he does not care about more, uh, immorality, personal sin, all of those kinds of things. It is that when you hear him make these statements about I want to focus in on more on this stuff than this stuff, he is saying that I want to deal with the issues of structural sin. These are things that people talked about in the 60s and the early 70s. These are things that liberation theology talks about. It talks about the economic sins, the kinds of sinful structures, as it were, that create these, these kinds of inequities in the world. Let me go a little bit further. Let's go forward to talk about evangelical Gaudium, because I'm watching my time and I want to make sure that you have time to talk about this. Every month, I cannot tell you how many times that I have I've listened to him, and I knew we were only going to have a, enough time to deal with some things. I'm happy to answer lots of questions um, afterwards. One of the things that has struck me is that almost in every major speech, almost in every major thing that he has written, there is an issue of poverty and an issue of sinful structures. And one of the reasons why everybody got on the joy of the gospel so much is that they thought it was going to be one of those normal statements. If you think about when we have um, statements that come out of the Vatican, either um, bull, papal bulls or whatever they might be, um, the world sort of pays attention. But a lot of people paid attention because this was the first real statement that the Pope had made. It was supposed to be about evangelization in the church, and most of it really is. But if you're going to evangelize people, you also have to talk about what's bad. So let me just read a couple of these very quickly, and I want to talk about this. And this first one I want to talk about especially because it hit home to me. Can we continue to stand by when food is thrown away while people are starving? This is a case of inequity. Today, everything comes under the laws of competition and the survival of the fittest, where the powerful feed upon the powerless. As a consequence, masses of people find themselves excluded and marginalized without work, without possibilities, without any means of escape. Um, when I first read the document when it was released, I was really struck by this for two reasons. One, as a person who ends up buying more food than I often need, I end up throwing things away, and I instantly got convicted. I can't tell you the last time that um, you know, a pope said something I got convicted. So I knew that it was like, this is the real deal and this man is like getting to me. And, 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 I, and, I, and I admit that in front of you because I, you know, I can be an academic and I can be hard about things or whatever, but I just, it was like a sword pierced my heart because I care about people who don't have things to eat and it made me have to focus in on myself. It made me have to think about what am I doing here? What am I not doing right? How am I wasteful? How am I thinking about things that I shouldn't be doing or you know, things I don't even need to buy that just you know, go moldy in the, in the refrigerator? So that, I mean, it might seem like a little thing, but think about it, if I multiply this by everybody in this room. What might you not do? What might we say? What might somebody be able to eat as a result? But the other part of the statement is really important. This, whole, this little place where he says the survival of the fifth spittest. This is where I get to be a historian. In 19th century, there was something, you know, we talk about Darwinism, but there was also social Darwinism. And that it was the sort of way in which people thought that, well, you know, if you just didn't make it, you know, that's too damn bad. That's what we have right now. We have a social Darwinism going on. We have a social Darwinism that says, you know, if you don't have enough money, that's too bad. If you can't find work, if you're unemployed for, you know, for how many weeks it is, more than 52 weeks and you can't find a job, that's just too bad. So the Pope is really starting to get out of these, you know, into these very deep statements. Let me just read the second one, or actually let me skip over and read the last one because I want to make sure we have time for questions. The worship of the ancient golden calf 
has returned in a new and ruthless guise in the idolatry of money and the dictatorship of an impersonal economy lacking a truly human purpose. The worldwide crisis affecting finance and the economy lays bare the imbalances and above all, their lack of real concern for human beings. Man is reduced to one of his needs alone, consumption. And so this is about extreme consumption. This is about the consumption of the world where some have many resources and others don't have resources. And so what the Pope is trying to do is reorient the conversation. I think he is going to continue to be relentless about this. And I can't remember the last time I saw Pope did something like this. This is from the World Economic Forum last week at Davos. He sent a whole statement to them. And this was part of the statement. I ask you to ensure that humanity is served by wealth and not ruled by it. Now, this is pretty powerful. When you have a pope sending a whole statement, it's a huge speech, and I'm not going to have time to go over this because I'm careful about the time we have here, that the fact that he cares to speak to the economic forum at Davos, you know, granted, you know, Bono's there and he's looking real cool in his sunglasses, but that the pope would make a statement means something very different. And that statement doesn't, just doesn't go to the world. It's happening to the interior of the church right now. One of the things that just happened is this whole restructuring of the Vatican Bank that has been a notoriously bad organization with lots of money laundering going on. They just arrested a, a Monsignor last week. They used to call him Monsignor 500 because he didn't have nothing but 500 euro notes in his wallet. That's kind of not cool. Um, they just changed, he just actually changed for the Cardinals who were in charge of the Vatican Bank. He switched them out. He is not just about thinking about this in the external, he is thinking about it in the internal. So this is someone who is concerned about the structures of injustice. This is not just some fairy talk about, oh, it's the poor, you know, or what some people have said is this is him just being, you know, he doesn't know what he's talking about. He knows exactly what he's talking about. And moreover, he's trying to do something very different about it. So what does all of this mean? I think what this means is that what Pope Francis is focusing in on is this new way to think about a poor people's campaign for the 21st century. How do we help the poor in the 21st century? One way you do that is to begin to call out the sinful structures that cause the poverty in the first place. And that is a very hard place to be because he's saying that we're not going to be this church that is going to retreat behind a wall. We are going to be a church that speaks out in the modern world. Someone said, and I can't claim this um, as my own statement, but I really agree with them, that this pope is probably the best bridge that we had to Vatican II. So in other words, this might be the moment where we begin to see not just these kinds of changes that make people very nervous about liturgy and you know, sexuality and all these things. That's not it. This may be the moment where we start to say, how do we speak these timeless truths about what did Jesus want us to do to a modern world that needs to hear that? And so in that sense, I'm very heartened by, by all of the things that Francis is saying. But how does that really apply to us? Why, why should you care? You came to hear a talk that was about social justice and everything else. And what I'm going to say to you is this. One is, you need to pay attention to what he's saying. It's very difficult to sort of want to think about, you know, in, in your world every day when you're trying to get your homework done and all this other stuff. And I know I'm giving it to people at Penn, right? Um, how do we listen to that different voice? But that voice of difference is a voice that can really affect you. Whether you decide to go into, you know, Jesuit relief or, or um, Catholic relief services, or you decide to do something over spring break that, that works with poverty, whether you decide to dedicate your life to it. Start to think about how you engage in this structural mess that is causing poverty in this world. 
How do we all engage in that every day? How do we, how do we prop up these structures with just the things that we think about we do every day? So we have to start on a, on a, on a micro level. How do, we, how do we think about that? The second is, is how do you think about you know, the ways in which you can be inspired by this? And um, I'm going to close with one of the things that um, Pope Francis said at the beginning of the week. And he talked about um, Pedro Arupe. It was the beginning of, of January. And he talked about um, Father Arupe sitting on the floor and playing in Japanese style. Now, there was a reason why he prayed in Japanese style. What a lot of people don't know about Pedro Arupe was that he was in Japan when the bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. And one of the things that, that happened was, as a result, they took care of a lot of the people who were there. It helped him to be able to sort of see that he could care for the same people who had imprisoned him not that long, for about eight or nine months, before he was able to be let out of prison in Japan, okay? Because they thought he was doing spying when he really wasn't. And he said that in the statement, Pope Francis, I often refer to a letter of Father Pedro Rupe, who had been general of the General Society of Jesus. It was a letter directed to the Centros of Investigation, the Action Social. In this letter, Father Rupe spoke of poverty and that some of the time of the real contact with the poor is necessary. This reality is very important to me, this is Francis. The need to be reacquainted with the reality by experience, to spend time walking on the periphery in order to really become acquainted with the reality and life experiences of people. If this does not happen, then we run the risk of being abstract ideologists or fundamentalists, which is not healthy. And I want to leave you with a question today. How can you walk with those on the periphery? How can we walk with the poor? How can you open up your lives in whatever little way you can while you're studying to be able to take a different walk? How to make it not just ideology, but a real working faith a faith that promotes justice, and a faith that helps other people see who Christ really is. That's the question we have today. And that's the question that is the bridge between Martin Luther King Jr. and Pope Francis. Thank you. And I, I thank you for your question because I think this is a really good place to say. Whenever people think about the word redistribution, they think you're going to take away from me to give to somebody who's not worthy. And that's not what that is. What it is is to start to think about how can we think about having more equity. Okay, so I want to talk about this in an American context. How, one way we can think about more equity is a just wage, a just working wage. 
if you have, um, let me talk about you know, what's happened to a lot of my friends who, when they worked their way during college, if you were a waitress, you only made $2.25 an hour because your tips were supposed to do that. That's not a just wage. Okay, so if you don't get tips, you don't do that. So it's not about redistribution. It's like we're going to take away from the rich because, and give to the poor, um, like uh, the guy from Home Depot who's really mad right now who didn't want to give money to um, the Cardinal in New York to, to, make Saint, um, to, to do St. Patrick's because he's like, I think this pope doesn't really like the, poor, like the rich. It's not about a question of liking, liking the rich. It's a question of how can we be fair? How can we be just? How can we begin to look at these systems that are unfair? For instance, um, let's think about mortgages. You know, people sold these unfair mortgages and made tons of money, and people ended up underwater in houses. They sold you a $400,000 house that was only worth $150,000. You're in the hole for, you know, what, $350,000, whatever it is, or $250,000. So this is, this is unjust. And they knew it was unjust, but they did it anyway. So, you know, we live in a system right now where a person who steals a loaf of bread is going to get more time than somebody at, you know, J.P. Morgan, who sold billions, billions. So this is where this reorientation of thinking begins, and this is where I also say that if you, if you know your Catholic Church teaching, it's not about sort of this thing of we want to do something Marxist and take away and do all this other stuff. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, is that we really have to look at these systems and begin to think about the ways in which they inherently favor the rich. Because sometimes the rich are just always going to be rich. If you know how to make money, you'll make money. You know, that's not the question. The question really is, is that if you're going to be rich, there are people who are philanthropists who are rich, they keep making more money, right? And why do they keep making more money? Because they know how to make it, right? But if you come from a third generation family of, you know, somebody who was an immigrant family that came into this country, you tried to get up by your bootstraps, you don't have land, you don't have an inheritance, you don't have wealth, and you stay in that same place, what can we do to change that person's life? Well, they might be able to, if we give some money to a school, that might change 100 kids' lives that would not go to college and end up going to college. That's a different kind of redistribution. And in America, if you give that money, it's a tax break. So this is where you have to stop listening to this language because that language is going to kill you. It will, take, it will tear your soul out because all you'll think is, this is what somebody else wants from me. And it's not, how much can I give so that I'll have, you know, this, it's a reciprocity thing. Trust me, you give, you get more. You just do. It might not be money, but you'll get something else. Sorry, I preach. <laughs> I don't want to be a priest, but I preach. I was just like listening to you speak here, and while you were giving your talk, I was thinking about okay, like what are some structures that I know of right now? Mm -hmm. Like what are some structures I know of right now? Yeah. And, like how your framework works within it. And the first thing I thought about was like privilege. Yeah. Um, lots of different ways, like racial privilege, the privilege of education, and mm -hmm. like people listening to your voice over another person's voice. Yeah. And like kind of going to like what you were saying too, I wonder like if it isn't so much like redistribution. Redistribution. But it's more like there's no need to stifle one. Everything can grow. Yeah. So it's just like it's not so much like let me take what I have and give it to you. It's more like let me raise you up. So we're all the same people. No, exactly. Like trying to bring us down to like the happy medium. It's like kind of bring everyone to the same spot. Yeah. It's like how do you? I mean, I always say this um, in department meetings. It's like um, it's not just about floating one person's boat. It's about lifting all the boats. In other words, and so how can we lift? How can we lift all the boats? How can we we create some equity for everyone to have have a buy into this? And I think that's a really important question because I, you know, it's our, it's our natural tendency. What what has happened 
is our language has changed so much to this very selfish individualistic language, especially in the United States. So it's very hard to, you know, an individualism, rugged individualism is something that our nation is built in on. It's great. But it also misses this communal aspect of how do we take care of others. You know, I used to joke with people and say, I grew up in Texas. And you know, people would say, well, you know, gosh, some parts of Texas are really racist. And I'm like, yeah. But I said, I can tell you that if I walked up to somebody's house and knocked on their door, maybe not their front door, but their back door, depending on where it is in Texas, and said I needed something to eat, they'd probably give me something. And they'd give me something because most of them consider themselves to be Christian. Now, if I asked them to have $100 so I'd go down the road, they probably wouldn't give me that. But they'd give me something to eat. So you start with the small things and you work your way up. Can I just real quick, the, the idea of the, the boats, that's often used by the other side as well, that we just need to increase more yeah, flow. Yeah. All the, the problem is that people don't realize is that some of the boats are tied to the bottom. Exactly. So when you I, I'm talking water, about boats without anchors. Yeah, when you, wave, when you raise the water mm -hmm. and you're tied to the bottom, you mm -hmm. drown. Yeah. Which is what we're dealing with now, is we got to figure out which boats are tied we to the bottom. we got a lot of people. tie them so that when the water rises, they don't drown. And I would submit that they're not even in the boat. They're in the water. They're, they're, they're not even, not without a life jacket. <laughs> Tread. Run So let me, I'm going to give you a little, a little brief history. What I think happened, and, and this is me speaking from a political point of view, okay, so just bear with me, is that the um, Conference of Catholic Bishops in 1988, I believe it was, had a great statement about poverty and economics and everything else. That was, that was wonderful. And then in the 90s, something happened. It was called the culture war. And everybody sort of bought into that and started, started getting into it. And he had a statement called Evangelicals and Catholics Together, which was a great statement. But what happened was, was that the more that the bishops got involved in cultural war issues as opposed to these general issues about immigration and all these other things, and they've always been doing that stuff, it's that the message got busted, you know? So from 2008 forward, what I think has happened is we're on this, this side of, you know, it's been a message about moral issues, you know, contraception, religious freedom, birth control, all this stuff, you know? And that has gone to the ex exclusivity of everything. You know, in other words, if you think about the use of conference of Catholic bishops, that's what I think about. I don't think about this other stuff that I know that they really have a history for. And that's also about um, a long-term history about who gets appointed, <laughs> who doesn't get appointed, that, that sort of thing. And so when you hear this pope say, I'm not into these clerical kinds of things, you need to be a servant, blah, blah, blah. One thing is he's saying that directly to them. And he's saying, I need you to straighten up. This is, all this stuff is over. Start, stop yelling at people and start loving some people, basically. That's the short, that's the short form version, so that's one. And the other piece of this is about what are the, you know, the valences that Catholic bishops have to deal with here. And so I'm interested now to see how this conversation is gonna change with the conference and how maybe we can get back to you know, some really important things like immigration that are, you know, that are crucial to Catholic church life in this country. Poverty would be one, but it's gonna take some time because I think it's gonna be really, it's really hard for them when they've been waging one kind of a thing, you know, to sort of retack and realize, oh shoot, I'm supposed to be doing this other thing too. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a battle, but that battle has, it has an arc of history to it. And there's some different reasons why it went more one way and not the other.
puts me in prison. Um, as a Catholic myself, mm -hmm. you know, you bring up these, um, these people like Bush and Obama, mm -hmm. Paul Ryan, who's the last president, presidential nominee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you have Pope Francis, who mm -hmm. kind of says this, and he's the leader of the Catholic Church, and you're a Catholic yourself. Mm -hmm. I, was, I was wondering what you think would be the best solution to kind of, for Catholics to come together with such radically opposite ideas to come yeah. together and yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think in this country, it's so it's it's we end up politicizing it a lot. And one of the reasons why I would like it to be more of a balance for the Catholic bishops and you know for local parishes is that I think we can come together on some things. I mean, I don't think any of us, whether we're on the liberal side or the very conservative side, want to see somebody starve, right? We would think about different ways to get there about how to not let that person starve. But, but I don't, I don't think, think we should allow like outsiders like Russian Law and others to pontificate about what Catholicism is. I think we need to get back to what Catholicism really is and not let people who don't know what it is tell us what it is. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I mean, that's, that's part of it. And the other part too is it's an internal struggle in the church. And part of the internal struggle with, you know, if, we, if I think about, you know, one pope who dies and very quickly and then these two middle popes, right? You know, one with a very long reign and then Pope Benedict. It was, it was sort of a, a different kind of focus and direction, right? So if we wanted to make this a liturgical battle, we could talk about you know, what was happening in the church and conservatism and the ways in which um, Pope John Paul II looked at communism because of his you know, coming out of Poland. That's a history for him, right? He didn't see it in the same kinds of ways that people saw in Latin America. So what I see with Francis is our hoping for sort of a, a balance scale is that you know to have somebody from the global south, somebody from Latin America, somebody who's not you know particularly liberal in one way, but particularly interesting in another way, you know, where he can reset a conversation, is that it'll help us reset. You know, that it'll help us to try to see us more as a you know as a universal unit instead of these you know some of the things that have happened with you know more conservative stuff or more liberal stuff happening. You know, I always tell people I you know. I don't personally want to be a priest. I understand people who do. That's a, that's a part of the church. But one of the, re, one of the things that we always have to remember as Catholics is that we have an issue of conscience. And we can use our conscience and we can think with that. And that is, the, that is the place where a lot of us don't start because we don't hear that kind of conversation anymore. And so you can have all kind of different Catholics, but one universal Catholic church. You know what I'm saying? And this is, where, this is where we've forgotten because we've broken off and fashionalized ourselves so much. So I'm, I'm interested in the things that he's saying in part because I think they harken back to some, some truths that are eternal, that are in scripture, that makes sense to me, you know, to, to, to talk about. And I don't think that just because, you know, I might be more on the liberal side, I think that because that's like what Jesus did. I mean, if Jesus walked around here today, I mean, most people would want to hit him upside the head. I mean, they wouldn't like it. Just be, he'd be really radical, but he'd also be for the poor. Hi. Um, I just had a question about um, how you felt with a Catholic figurehead um, representing the message, like, be there for the poor, mm -hmm. demonstrate, right, all of that. Um, but I think it's interesting to think about the restrictions that come with a Catholic figurehead representing the, goal, the global message, yep. one that might be spearheaded by Christianity or other religions, but it's not in any way limited to them. So how would you feel, um, I guess, describing the way to get such a message head by, headed by a Catholic figurehead to be something that's more global, someone who might not necessarily identify with Catholicism, someone who 
um, might not necessarily mm -hmm. have the right set of morals. Mm -hmm. And I would guess that oftentimes the people at the top of like corporations, for example, mm -hmm. who are taking advantage of money or taking mm -hmm. advantage of the poor may not necessarily identify with Catholic ideals. Like, how would you? Um, how are you supposed to affect them? Not necessarily just affect them, but just the dissemination of the message that even though it's very much Catholic, like showing their, um, your like just dedication to the poor, it's also a human issue. Yes, so absolutely. I mean, you'd be, I mean, I think that he has something to say for atheists right now, honestly. I mean, I, I just do. I mean, you can take this in the most humanistic way possible and just say poverty does not help us. You leave God out. Okay, it doesn't help a nation, it doesn't help anybody grow, it doesn't help kids. I mean, all the things you can be concerned about without having any deity involved. Okay, so when I, when I say this, I'm, I'm saying this from two ways. One is, is that, you know, it doesn't matter to me whether people believe or not, that, that's immaterial. The second piece of it is like, he's the Pope. Come on, you can't, you know, like the, the, the voice he has is like, you can just get out there and say whatever you want. And so people might look at this and go, and, and this is what gets said to me a lot on places like Twitter and Facebook. Um, well, you know, there's all this stuff wrong with the Catholic Church and blah, 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 blah. I'm like, yeah, but, you know, finally, we have somebody who's speaking with clarity about something. And you can't just be a hypocrite and say it. Do you know what I mean? You can't be hypocritical and say, you know, uh, well, I just want a pure church and I want this and I want that. And then you don't care about any of those other people and you don't care about what's going on in the world. I think that there are lots of people who can say this. I hope that he's not the only person that says this. And I also think that, you know, and, and I'm thinking about you being young, you don't know this, but I mean, one of the things that the Catholic Church does that nobody sees is have interreligious and ecumenical dialogues. They're talking to people all the time. They're talking to Pentecostals, they're talking to Baptists, they're talking to Lutherans, they're talking to Muslims, they're talking to Jews. They are having conversations. And so they're conversations that, you know, you in this room will never hear about, and you don't want to read that boring stuff anyway. But these are the places where people are, are meeting together to talk about this. And I think, you know, Muslims care just about poverty just like we do, like, like a Catholic would. And so do Jews, and so do Jains, and so do Buddhists. And, you know, there's, there's poverty, and how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to deal with these issues? And we might not agree on everything, but I do think having, you know, a cacophony of voices about poverty is better than having no voice about poverty and, and no voice about what is rapidly spiraling out to be a huge piece of equity in this world. And I'm not talking just about America, around the world, where you have, I mean, it was just some disgusting thing in the New York Times about a $25,000 a night hotel room with real jewels on the wall in New York. And I'm like, even if I had the money, I'm not staying there. Okay, that's just, I mean, like, what? why do you need this room? But it's this, this, this quest for consumption, it's the same thing that he's talking about, that I think, you know, you've got people like Bono and others who are great stars who are trying to work against the same kind of thing. We've got a lot of, a lot of things to deal with in this world. But it doesn't, it doesn't have to be just a post voice, it could be a lot of voices. But I think he's, you know, the reason why he's getting so much press right now is that we haven't heard this voice in a while. And that's what's different. Was there one more? Um, you know, being a 90s baby mm -hmm. and 
someone who is really, I'm really happy about this message that he's getting out. Mm -hmm. um, I'm worried that this seemingly abstract concept of, you know, Catholic justice and, mm -hmm. you know, eradicating poverty from our communities, um, how we were able to distort that message for people like Rush Limbaugh and a lot of um, conservative economic policy. Mm -hmm. So my question for you is, how can we push back against that? And how are we able to change those messages? Because obviously in a lot of our um, political affairs, as you saw with the unemployment benefits and um, the budget deal, all that kind of things, that's, a lot of that is ingrained into the conservative message of um, self-efficacy and individualism. Um, so how are we able to change that for 2014 and beyond? Well, I think one thing is civic engagement. I, I think that people don't think about that very much. And, you know, it used to be sort of, you know, the idea from JFK Ford about, you know, Catholics who were involved in, in, in politics, right? And I'm thinking about, um, I'm just forgetting her name, nuns of the bus, uh, Sister Small Family, yeah. So to think about people like that who are confronting Paul Ryan and saying, you stupid. You know, not stupid, but you know, that's the what I would say. But, uh, but also to have a conversation, I'm, you know, I'm from Texas, I'm not very tactful. Um, you know, how to have a conversation about this with people. And, and, and write it, I mean, I think all of you don't really realize, I mean, people read stuff every day about this, and these voices are out there, these, these voices who are saying, no, 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 it's the economy, whatever. I'm just thinking about a young man right now who actually worked for, um, not for NCR, but um, for the Catholic News Service, Adam Shaw, who just wrote, he was on Fox, he just wrote this big thing about Pope Francis's disdain and, and for those who are not content to soak in poverty, right? And, and he called it Pope Francis's war on aspiration. This is Catholic, okay? And I was just like, I gotta write something about this because this is just ridiculous. And I'm like, you know, and this is why he lost his job at Catholic News Service was because he just had, you know, he kept hammering and hammering and hammering on the Pope. And this is, this is back to, you know, a conservative Catholic. This is the head of the church, right? So I think that the ways in which we begin to have different conversations is to put truth out there. I mean, a lot of the stuff is, I'm gonna use a term that people use, a lot of it is just dirt, it's just stupid, okay? It's not even real, it's not even true. And so, you know, Rush Limbaugh's the thing is like, I just gotta say some stuff so I can keep my advertisers going and no matter how, you know, radical crazy it is, I'm gonna say it. When we begin to speak truth instead of lies, that changes things. And so many of us are content to listen to a lie instead of the truth. And so I think the way to do that is to be able to begin to educate yourself about what is real, what is true, what is just, and become, become active in all the ways that you can. And the last question somebody had on there. <clears throat> um, how, how do you think um, it's possible to incite people to fight for the poor and against mm -hmm. these Injustice, well, and gets the injustices of um, these social economic statuses when many people are so quick to just deem that the poor are lazy and undeserving. Yeah, I think um, they have to sort of start to take a look at what their backgrounds are and realize that maybe they weren't always rich. I think a lot of people have this perception that they get things that they need for the parents and they get the credit cards and I must be rich. And the moment your parents don't have a job anymore, people. And like the money goes away, they can't pay for Villanova, maybe have a scholarship, oops, you don't recall. Okay? And so I think that there's an experience of, you know, what, what the Pope said in that last quest, that thing I talked about from Arupe, is being on the margins. You need to start to see where people are on the margins. Look, this is Philadelphia. There is so much poverty around. You just, you know, drive a few places. You will see it. Go to Kensington. Go, you know, there's tons of places you can go where there's poverty. There's a lot of ways that you can get involved. And you have to start to think about, 
you know, as, as at least as much as you can, how much of your time do you want to give to this, you know? And this is a moment where you can, you're young, okay? You don't have all these other things. Once you start to get a job and all the rest of the stuff is gonna end up being that you won't be able to have the same kind of time. If you don't have time, you can give money. You can, you can do certain kinds of things. And if you want to encourage other people, you know, befriend somebody who's lost their job and see how hard it is to get another one. You know, I, I think a lot of people live in a bubble. You don't know anything outside of that bubble, and everybody in the bubble looks like you. And that doesn't mean they look like you racially, they just might look like you economically. What does it mean to have somebody above, and, above you and somebody below you? What does that look like? What, what does it mean? And how, and how do those people above and below you um, value you know, material things and value money? And then search yourself and figure out, how am I supposed to have a relationship to that? What can I do to change it? And so I think that's how you start. You know, you don't wait for something to happen. My joke is always is that the only thing that's going to cure us right now is the aliens arrive. <laughs> and that's a joke, but I'm not kidding. I mean, it may be the only way because we have so many deep divisions in this country. We actually need like a movie like Independence Day to just say, okay, look, like, we all have this common enemy or something, and it doesn't look like us, and it came from outer space. And maybe people will pay attention. I say that facetiously. But I, I don't know. I really think about where we are right now, and I hope we can pass this point. But I, you know, I like to think of Pope Francis as somebody who's speaking a different kind of message. And that's what's heartening to me. Thank you all.